Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Hello. All right. Well, hello and welcome in, everyone. Hope you're all doing great today. Uh, This is Lynn Vartan, the host of the Apex Hour. It's KSU Thunder 91.1. And it is November and it is 2020 election week. Wow. Well, we're not going to get too much into that, but we uh, are celebrating uh, Native American Month on campus. But more than that, we are just celebrating the author that I have in the room with me today. So I would love to welcome in right away, Tate Walker. Welcome. Thank you. Appreciate being here. It's been so great to have you on campus. And just to kind of dig right in, I would love for you to just tell our audience listening just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, in traditional indigenous societies, a lot of us introduce ourselves in our language if we're able to do so. So I'd like to do that. Um, And that just identifies me as Tate. I am from uh, Cheyenne River, South Dakota. That's um, the Minikanju folks. Uh, so I'm a citizen of that tribe up there. And uh, I greet you with a good heart. Oh, thank you so much. That is so great. Introductions are a huge part of the culture. And I feel like it's such a beautiful way to sort of open your heart right away. And is that sort of the the the, the impact of it? Right. And especially as the speaker or the communicator, it really grounds and centers what I'm trying to do. And if I can incorporate that community right away, which is what I'm trying to do, right? I'm part of this community and this is who I am. And now I'm taking you into my heart. I think that really um, shapes how the messaging comes through and and for me, but also for the audience as well. Wow. Well, thank you for that. I love it. Um, can you talk just a little bit about your background? And I mean, you are so many things. You are a writer, a, a blogger, a poet, a designer. I want to get into all of that. But just to give people a little bit more background on on how you came to be where you are today. Sure. Well, I'm a hustler, baby. Uh, <laughs> that's sort of where it comes from, right? Uh, the folks who are willing to pay me for certain jobs. That's uh, sort of how it started. But I studied in undergrad journalism and mm-hmm. I went to Fort Lewis College in Durango, which isn't unlike the environment here in Cedar City. Um, lots of beautiful mountains and um, great student body. And that's uh, that was the career field I chose. So I spent several years as a newspaper reporter. Oh. And a big part of that was um, my indigenous identity. So that really came through in college. College is a great place to find yourself. And for me, that meant finding my indigenous self. And being part of the journalism crew uh, opened up realms within the native communities who said, we need storytellers who are like us, who can tell our stories. Uh, because as native people were relegated to like crime sections or like the right. latest powwow, right? Very service level stories right. being told. And that's where... Um, 
that's where I started. And that really got me into, again, that community space. So it wasn't just about telling stories and reporting them. It then became uh, more important to participate in those stories yeah. So uh, and be part of the stories. So that's where sort of the activism kind of comes into play. And I did um, uh, social service work uh, for Native youth and families in South Dakota. was also a teacher for a couple of years, middle school teacher. I uh, worked for the ACLU and um, Head Start. Uh, there was just a lot of things, but it all came back to Native community. And that's always sort of led me uh, to the places I've been and the spaces I've been. But writing and storytelling, it's kind of my, my vibe. I really enjoy what the written word can do just in terms of like getting out messaging. What is it that you think is so powerful about the written world, word or, or such a powerful vehicle for you? Right. And the potential that yeah. it oper- uh, presents because, uh, you know, indigenous communities, a lot of us didn't have written language. And there was purpose to that, right? Uh, very much um, allowed for our histories to be, the, hi- the lessons that we learned from those histories to be evolutionary, right? That could grow with us as a community versus, you know, something that's written down in canon can be misused, right? Mm-hmm. Well, way back then, this was done this way, therefore it must also be done this way now. And that's not true for a lot of stuff. I mean, society evolves and uh, recreates itself, and uh, it's possible to do that with our histories. And I think with the written word, as somebody who struggles with anxiety, first of all, and also as somebody who um, I feel like um, the written word allows me to structure what I want to say in, in, the, in the best way possible. Right. Uh, and it's really important to me that I get the message across in appropriate ways because so much can be lost with, um, you know, just speaking or like um, like the reactionary stuff that can happen on like, right. you know, broadcast news, right? Like, yeah. what do you think about this? Oh, I don't know. It's, it's great. You know, right. but I really wanted to say this. And the written word can let me do that. Uh, and beyond that, uh, poetry in, in particular allows that written word to be just express way more emotion than say like a news article can yeah Yeah. tell me a little bit about poetry um you i've seen your poetry a bit online but um tell me a little bit about that process a little bit about your poetic message and will we ever see a book of poetry from you I, I think so. <laughs> I've uh, been approached by a good friend who just started an uh, indigenous publishing house, uh, who's also a published uh, poet themselves, Amber McCrary. So keep an eye out for that. Um, but uh, my, I actually do have a full manuscript of poems. So <laughs> over Yay. 100 pages, which for some poets are like, whoa. Uh, and so that's called the, the Trickster Riots, so oh, with yeah. the play on the riots. Yeah. Um, trickster Rights. So poetry has... Um, you know, I think a lot of us come to poetry from like an academic standpoint where it's very formulaic, right? You have to have, you know, the sonnets and, you know, the pentameters and the rhythms, which I think there's definitely place for that. And I do challenge myself or try to challenge myself to stick within sort of like a rhyme scheme. Uh, but man, again, the written word is so vast. Like I love finding words <laughs> to um, like, like, not in Lakota words specifically, like what is a word that we have for, uh, say, the sun, right? Uh, which is we. And then when you kind of play with that, you know, we as in like the royal we, W E. Uh-huh. And then we in Lakota is W I. Um, you know, there's something that can be done connecting those two, uh-huh. right? And yeah. it, it's just kind of fun to look at that. Um, but poetry is that um, that emotional connection with people. 
it used to be something I did for myself. Um, I definitely had a bad experience with poetry in high school. Mm. Very much shamed for not following what the oh. teacher set aside for it. And so I internalized that and only had poetry for me. But I think it is, an, is a testament to how much it meant that I continued writing poetry for myself. Right. Right. And I liked it. Yeah. And then someone got a hold of it and was like, hey, you should present this. Uh, yeah. And so my blog had, um, I think I, I took on J.K. Rowling. <laughs> In a blog, yeah, uh, but I it was love a poem, that. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and it was fun to write. But uh, folks got a hold of it, and um, and beyond that, uh, other poetry that I did in sort of an activist sphere uh, really uh, took hold of folks, and said they they wanted me to present it. So there you are. And I was just curious: is are there threads of um, L- Lakota? St- storytelling and pacing and timing in your poetry. Um, because I, when I think of um, Native American literature or storytelling, I think of it as being very much an oral tradition. And I wonder about, you know, Lakota poetry is not something I'm very familiar with. And do you have inspirations in that? Does that come through in your writing? Is that a part of it? That's a great question. And I think, yes, the when you listen to Lakota language, uh, and I think this kind of goes into perhaps other foreign languages, but it's very lyrical. Mm-hmm. Like there's um, the purpose and intention behind the words used has a flow, especially when you hear like fluent speakers mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. am not that. But it's it's beautiful. It's mm-hmm. beautiful language. And it's very – it takes your entire body to, to use that language uh, from your hand motions to uh, the grunts you use and your eye movements, right, all goes into right. a statement. Um, and so that poetry that comes forth – and I'm blessed to be part of a, a, a group out of um, Pine Ridge. It's called the Center for American Indian Research, and it's uh, – so Carnes. Um, it uh, – we do an exhibit every year – on a Lakota topic. So, for instance, we've done uh, Pate Sanwi, who's a white buffalo calf woman, uh, Wounded Knee, which is a massacre site in mm-hmm. South Dakota. Uh, we've done um, some origin stories. And what's cool about it is the curator, who is also Lakota, will take all Lakota artists from like painters or sculptors, so like physical art, and then also poets. I'm part of that poetry piece and also musicians. And together we're, we take the narrative that's being presented, the story, if you will. And then we each take a section of that and write or create from that. Oh, and that's oh, been going cool. on for years now. And that's sort of how sort of my, my poem has been published. And if you read my poems, you, I think the thing that comes across first is they're long, um, <laughs> but they're also meant to be performed. Oh. Uh, and so like the language, how it's spoken uh, or even just like the, the timing, of course. I uh, one of my poems is uh, kind of revisits um, a, a woman who the story is very patriarchal in how it's told. Like it's about the son and the husband mostly, but it centers around this Lakota woman. And so I took my poem and sort of made her the center, uh, in which uh, she gets to choose, you know, her her path. But one of the 
things I do in Lakota is take um, a Star Wars uh, familiar line from Han Solo of, uh, you know, where Princess Leia says, I love you. And Han Solo says, I know. And so I did that in Lakota and I had to have elders help me with the translation. And they were so confused as to like, why would she say I know versus I love you too. All right. And I was like, it's a thing. Trust me. But so we were able to like contemporize, you know, these traditional languages. And I I just love the possibilities with that. Yeah, that's beautiful. I I just want to, I know I started out, I want to talk about activism and we're getting there. But um, one of the other things that you just said that I just think is so beautiful. I mean, I, I love language. And also we've been talking about expression, especially in the context of wearing masks. And um, you just mentioned that, you know, in, in the Lakota language, you know, uh, maybe eye movements or, or grunts or things uh, or, or whatever, uh, sounds. The nonverbals. And, and the yeah. nonverbal sounds. And I wonder if you just could talk a little bit more about that because I think that might be um, unfamiliar to a lot of people and some people might be curious about it. Sure. Well, and I think you can take this from a mostly historical lens because a lot of our languages were lost right. in the fires of colonialism and things like boarding schools and, and genocidal policies. So not cool. But when we look at the history of our languages, you have to remember we're on Turtle Island, which had thousands of tribes represented. Right. And we had to interact. Uh, and so a lot of our languages incorporate a sign language, which has been studied and used in a lot of, um, uh, uh, I think, um, like ethnography stuff to, yeah, to, right. to figure mm-hmm. out what we're saying and translate those into English. Um, but a lot of how we connected with uh, outside um tribes was through body language mm-hmm. right so things had to represent other things that were you know well known and widely known and i think that's pretty cool because the elders i've been part you know been, been exposed to always use big gestures uh, mm-hmm. when they're speaking um especially when they're passionate about something so there's a lot of movement and a lot of you know head nods and like do you understand me right mm-hmm. and and they're making sure you're following along and um you know someone's really serious if they don't say something right like oh, there's silence so yeah probably in trouble now yeah so yeah and and you know that's stuff that's um when you talk about reconnecting with community you know that's those are learned behaviors of mm-hmm. communication mm-hmm. and when you're not a, when you're not part of the community and i was not raised um as part of like my entire childhood we had some um we did live on the reservation when I was really young, but then uh, my parents divorced. So then I wasn't part of that uh, until college actually. So the, um, what I, what it not being exposed to that language took me a long time to like, for instance, teasing, right. Um, is a big part of our culture. Um, and if you're not, <laughs> if you haven't been exposed to it, it can sound really mean and bullying, <laughs> right. Uh, someone teasing you. Um, but it's a, it's how you are incorporated into the family. Oh. And, takes time, but yeah. is well worth the learning for sure. Cool. Well, thank you for that. Well, we are going to talk about activism, but first I have some music to play. Um, and I'd love, I asked Tate for some suggestions of some artists that I might be less familiar with and I really want to like showcase. And, um, so the Frank, the first one is Frank Walm and, um, the song I have is Runaway. But I was wondering, Tate, can you tell me a little bit about this artist and how you came to know them? Frank is amazing. Uh, he's Sichanju Lakota, so Rosebud, uh, and fantastic. Um, I He's a younger artist, and um, like a lot of uh, folks on reservations, youth on reservations, um, a lot of their outside knowledge comes from 
um, pop culture and uh, rap uh, is very popular on a lot of reservations. He found his voice through rap. He actually went to school for medical, for medicine, to be a doctor, and actually found that his medicine was through expression and music. And so he's really made a space for like just flute and drum, but also he plays guitar, um, you know, how that kind of expression can be healing. And yeah, his, um, <laughs> he's just fantastic. Very, very, uh, um, one of those people who make you just jazz for the future. Oh, I love it. Well, this song is called Runaway. The artist is Frank Wall. You're listening to the Apex Hour, KSUU, Thunder 91.1. Broken heart. I'm 
mom's heart is out of chase Those who never care I'm aware that love don't care about what's fair Said we carry the traits that ruin what they had My biggest fear in life I become a dad I become a mother Codependent lover I become a dad Moving undercover My love dies when their hearts collide My love dies when their hearts collide Well, welcome back to the Apex Hour, KSU Youth under 91.1. Um, that song was called Runaway. I love that last chord. It's so rich and so deep and so intense. Um, and the artist is Frank Waln, W-A-L-N, if you want to check out more of his music. Um, also, just a reminder that if anybody's interested in the music that gets played on the Apex Hour, you can go to our website, which is seu.edu slash apex, um, and then click on the podcast button, and you can find the podcast and also a Spotify playlist that's uh, open public Spotify playlist called Played on Apex Hour. So this song and many others will be in there. Welcome back into the studio, Tate Walker. Thank you. Loving it. Um, Tate is an author and blogger, communications presence. You've been a, p- a poet, designer, all different things. And we're and right now, I would like to ask you: Do you identify as an activist? Sure. Is that how you would describe? Because I know people have different relationships to that word. Right. Uh, I, I do uh, identify as activist, um, but uh, it goes into like that role responsibility piece that's so important within community building Mm -hmm. that uh, like other people have identified me as that. And so I accept that responsibility, um, which includes things like, you know, speaking to legislatures about missing and murdered indigenous women legislation, for instance, or um, marching alongside, you know, in solidarity with black lives matter or, um, you know, making sure, um, you know, my kid's curriculum is, is inclusive or whatever it might be. Um, uh, I think activists can kind of have like a lot of folks can, might use it as like a derogatory thing. Oh, that activist, um, uh, you know, and as someone who maybe is just doing it for like clout, um, I, I would hope folks would know that that's not my intention. Um, and again, goes back to that community building with, you know, it's, it's not for me. Right. <laughs> right. right. Um, it's for the, the people to come. So, yeah. And, and you mentioned some of the topics that you have been, uh, you know, an activist uh, for and about, um, including Black Lives Matter. Um, but I'd also like to mention a couple of the others. You've been very active in the mascot um, change movement um, and also in the pipeline project, I think, as well. So if you were d- to define true activism activism or the best kind of activism or the activism you would like to see kind of universally right now how what what does that look like what is that definition for you great question that i don't have an actual definition for but it goes back to that community building because that's the best way i identify myself especially that indigeneity i have to i have to be doing and working toward a better indigenous future Otherwise, what am I doing it for? Uh, and so if the things that I'm pushing don't go back to, you know, the wellness of indigenous people, I don't f- 
feel like the activist title is mine to claim then. Um, but this also goes into, say, my role as Two-Spirit. So that's... Um, yeah, for, could you define yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people know, but a lot of sure. people don't know also. So Two-Spirit is often seen as sort of an umbrella term for Indigenous folks who identify with in the LGBTQ++ spectrum, which isn't necessarily wrong, but it's also not the full picture. Um, without getting too much into the history, a lot of indigenous folks who are LGBTQ will say they're two-spirit, but just as many folks who are uh, indigenous folks who are LGBTQ do not identify as two-spirit. Um, a lot of it's, of course, dependent on the tribal community they come from. We're not monolithic, so not everybody you know, addresses or identifies the same way. Within my community... Two-spirit is a role and title that you're given, right? That you earn. Right. Um, and that's not to say that there are people in my community who maybe haven't necessarily earned that, but, uh, and who do identify as, as two-spirit. And I, I'm not here to like shame them and be like, you haven't done the work. Um, but that is more meaningful to me as an identity to be, to say like my elders have gifted me with this role and that's how they claim me. Um, and and so I have work to do, right? Yeah. So and that goes into the activism that I I, I uh, is so meaningful to me. Um, do you yeah. mind if I ask what I, or, yeah. and as and only as much as you're comfortable? Yeah, but what kind of work is involved in um, in in gaining that title and sure. and that designation? I I'm, don't know much about it. Right. I think it's different for depending. I mean, you can ask ten different people and get ten different answers. For me, it started with. Um, I mentioned college was a place where I reconnected uh, with my indigenous uh, identity because it was something that was I was displaced from, uh, especially in my teen years. Um, and it and it starts with uh, coming out as a teenager um, as as queer. I didn't have words for what uh, you know gender non-binary might might uh, be be then. So I just said I was gay. I didn't know what that meant and. That was not an accepted thing uh, where I was living. Uh, but when I was reclaiming my own indigeneity, Two-Spirit was a concept that was brought up and it uh, resonated with me. So when I was reclaiming or re reintroducing myself to my community and asking elders about it, um, it started, you know, they, they were telling me about it and what for Lakota what that is. So, you know, Two-Spirit is the colonial words, right? For Lakota, the um, Wikte is often recognized as sort of uh, like a queer person. It's specific to um, like a, a masculine presenting person uh, uh, presenting, uh, claiming like a feminine role. So Wikte, it's literally woman, man. That's like the words that are there. But for me and the elders um, that I spoke with, when I... Uh, I had, to, I had to prepare for a Sundance ceremony, which is sort of like the ultimate ceremony of sacrifice within Lakota culture. Part of that learning, and it was a full year process, like no drugs, no alcohol. You had to learn language. You had to be able to pray. You know, there was lots of um, elements of um, of responsibility inherent within this ceremony. Right, right. So with Sundance, um, you know, and, and uh, after I completed it, there was sort of this acknowledgement that, you know, you are, um, you have sacrificed for the people and now, you know, your real work begins. And so with that, um, and knowing that, you know, identified, you know, within a queer framework, uh, you know, uh, bisexual, but also now more gender nonconforming, um, 
the elders said, well, you're we are Witko, and we are is woman in Lakota, and Witko is, uh, for lack of a better term, it's crazy, mm-hmm. but it's beyond. So it's like the idea of um, seeing beyond mm-hmm, is mm-hmm, is is mm-hmm. that's the crazy. It's not like crazy as in mental right, health. It's right. crazy like, wow, I had no idea that was something that we could think about. Right. Um. So one of our Leaders, uh, Lakota leaders, famous Lakota leaders is Crazy Horse. So his name is Tashunka Witko. And so being Wian Witko was very meaningful. And it was only later um, doing some ancestry work with my relatives that uh, we found our, my great, great, great grandfather is Chief Hump, who was mentor to Crazy Horse. So like, like the connections that were made within just finding two spirit for myself Mm -hmm. have just been phenomenal for like giving me purpose, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. purpose that I felt like was really lost, especially, you know, teenage years are so pivotal for identity development and just not having, you know, the Lakota presence there right. was just mm, right. lots of troubles. Um, still kind of overcoming some of those with like yeah. therapy. Um, but that two-spirit role that was presented to me was always presented with, okay, it's not just that you're queer, right? Like that's its own thing. Two-spirit isn't necessarily a gender identity. It's it's that responsibility that you have to your people in the in the traditional times, right? Olden times, back before colonialism, it was a healer's role, right? Somebody who could see beyond, you know, just sex and gender, right? It right. was uh, so wherein there were like medicine men and medicine women, there were two spirits who could heal and work with anyone yeah you know it yeah. wasn't relegated to a, a, a certain you know gender and i think that's pretty cool because there were also um leaders and warriors who mm-hmm. uh, incorporated you know this two-spirit responsibility and then were treated with this um honorific and i i think that's pretty beautiful <laughs> yeah it's really that. in light i mean and and i don't know if 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 the tribes are similar in that, but at least in, in what you're saying about the Lakota um, culture, that's, that's very, uh, you know, just at a higher level in terms of, you know, seeing the queer community um, is, as just having this power. It's right. really beautiful. And of course, that's not to say that we don't have homophobia, transphobia in our communities. Uh, you know, that genocide and um, assimilation and boarding schools really messed with our, understandings of, yeah, of things of like course. two-spirit um so we're still trying to reclaim that even within our communities but i'm blessed to say i have family and relatives that have always supported that element um how, how about the feminism side of it Fe- feminist feminism i know you've been described as a, a a feminist or a feminist writer these kinds of things how do you feel about that term and how do you def- what does that term mean to you definitely I claim feminism. I think um, this idea that uh, we can make the world better by rematriating it is, you know, why not? It doesn't seem to have worked the other way. So, um, but it also, again, um, harkens back to how a lot of our traditional indigenous societies were run. Uh, and there was a lot of um, justice that's served when uh, matriarchy takes hold. The feminist title can be problematic for sure. In fact, uh, in, you know, going to you know, women's studies in college, you know, the feminist is very much a badge of honor, you know, in those classes anyway, some other classes. It's not. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I really um, rallied with that because it gave me, again, that purpose that I was seeking. Um, you know, of course, we want equal pay. And yes, we want to read, you know, women's literature and not just well, men. Um, but it was actually Winona LaDuke, uh, who I think visited here a couple of years ago, um, White Earth Ojibwe, uh, and 
former vice presidential candidate uh, way back <laughs> when, but has done lots of books and is very good with like food sovereignty and like anti-pipeline work. But I listened to her speak once about feminism and how the ideals of like, we call it like first wave feminism and like third wave feminism, right? Um, those ideals are very much set in a white supremacy culture. Mm. So this idea that it's not about um, making space for all you know, women of color or, um, you know, people of color, it's, um, or, or just genders in general, right? Like this idea of um, inclusion, right? Um, feminism is often from a like white feminist lens where uh, it's not about dismantling the plantation. It's about owning half of it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, and so like that's that's super problematic. And Winona put it in this great um, uh, way of, of, of saying, uh, you know, in the mid-century 1900s, the feminist movement was like anti-work, uh, or, or like, like you know, you, we wanted to um, move away from like farming or agriculture, or like uh, it made the idea of dirt dirty oh, or like yeah, morally right. wrong yeah. and mm -hmm. bad, right? Like, oh, you you can have it all. You need to have these products, and you can you know be a working woman, and you know wear the clothes and have the right. job, whatever you don't have to have kids um you know make sure that not make sure but like you don't have to be the the caregiver right and it sort of put these like negative spins on things that were very traditional like wellness roles for women uh for indigenous women anyway and she you know the that that really um kind of opened my eyes to like oh yeah there's kind of some issues there a lot of issues um feminists white feminists in particular, seek something they've never had, wherein indigenous people are reclaiming things they had and were taken from oh, them. That's a very important and clear distinction. And it's and, and that was, again, something Winona really helped me come to because, yeah, like, you know, feminism, we're like, we want this. And for a lot of natives, it's like, we want it back. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, we had this. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, and that distinction is often left out because um, – you know, when we talk about like equal pay, you know, we're like, oh, we want to, you know, we're on 70 cents on the dollar. So we need that extra 30 cents. And, you know, Native women are like, yeah, we're like, we need extra 80 cents before we become even remotely, right, you right. know, equitable in that yeah. pay scheme. Yeah. So like, and where does that come in? So um, cool, I do yeah. identify as feminist as long as the inclusive feminism is right. in there, a la Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, right. But yeah, I think there's definitely space for indigenous issues within feminism as long as that space is made. And, you know, so Fierce, um, the uh, essays uh, buying about dauntless women, which yes. is for sale now I, in your bookstore. That's right. We have it in our bookstore. It's available online. And your essay in there is awesome. And I talk a lot about that. So if you're interested in learning more about, you know, indigenous feminism, I do um, approach a lot of the things that I care about activism-wise, everything from, say, pipelines to mascots. Yes. Or even missing and murdered indigenous women to you know, feminism and like indigenous feminism of like reclaiming versus just, you know, making space for. So yeah, I highly recommend um, the book. All of the essays I think are fabulous in it. And I was, I really enjoyed yours. I mean, there's just such a, a, a 
a broad spectrum of, you know, great history, great things about the culture that I didn't know the power of women in in the culture and also how it applies today. So yeah, that book is called Fierce. Um, and then we're going to talk about your upcoming book. But before we do that, we have another song to play. Um, so you gave me also the land back by a tribe called Red. And why did you include that one in our list of listening for today? So I think it goes to the theme of my topic today uh, when I was presenting for the Apex event Um about land acknowledgement and how those can be very useful for institutions of higher learning, especially when it comes to the visibility of your indigenous students. Land Back by a tribe called Red, which is an a indigenous uh, group out of Canada. Um, I want to say Cree, but I'm not sure. So I'm not going to put the tribal name in it. But they do some awesome um, just like digital beats, but they often incorporate like actual power groups or drum groups mm-hmm. or singers into their into their work and um always have a message to it land back is sort of a sort of a new eh, it's, it's not new <laughs> we've been wanting our land back for, <laughs> for a long time many hundreds of years um but um this idea of land back is sort of new they've been hashtagging it for the last year or so um as a way to put teeth into things like land acknowledgements mm-hmm. and if you've ever seen things like oh we acknowledge the tradition you know the people of these lands you know the Paiute people for instance of these lands and their contributions uh you know past and present and it usually ends there land back is sort of this idea that, well, we can go further <laughs> than just recognizing a people, right? We can actually put forth policies that say even actually, hopefully, the end game of giving the land back um, and uh, the benefits that would happen because of it. So this this song is sort of, or this, this music is giving uh, credence to that. Cool. Well, this is Land Back by A Tribe Called Red. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1.
All right. Well, welcome back to the Apex Hour. That was Land Back by a tribe called Red. Uh, this is Lynn Vartan. You're listening to the Apex Hour, KSUU, Thunder 91.1. 91.1. Welcome back into the studio, Tate Walker. That song, Land Back, we were just talking in your presentation today, we were talking about land acknowledgement. And um, and uh, while the song was playing, we were chatting a little bit about that. And I was just curious um, if there are any models out there um, in other countries or other places in the world where they are um, acknowledging or moving towards land back or land acknowledgement um, in a way that is um, something we can use as a model. And I, I mention it because I was saying I, I've spent the last couple summers in Australia and before concerts and before events, um, there would be a, um, a, a, you know, a native person, an indigenous person uh, to come and say either a, a prayer or a poem or a uh, dedication of some kind. And, and I know that in Australia, they've They've made quite a movement in the last 20 years to to uh, acknowledge or move towards um, a, a, a great acknowledgement of their indigenous people. And I was just curious if if you think that's a, a, a good direction. Is that moving in the right way? Is that a motto we can follow? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no. Uh, land acknowledgements became in vogue, I would say, you know, trendy and things that were sort of wider wider used uh not too long ago i would say maybe within for sure within the last decade but probably more so within the last five years uh where before presentations or conferences whatever it might be that you you have a big group of people you would pause at the beginning and acknowledge the land you're on and the caretakers past and present of that land indigenous people for instance big part of that was the idea that the land you're on is native land. <laughs> um, and it's always important to remember that because it's easy to forget, right? Uh, and we don't make space for the histories, but also contemporary issues native folks are experiencing, which means a lot of our issues we're experiencing don't get noticed. So things like oil pipelines or climate change, right. uh, missing and murdered indigenous women, which we talked about before, language revitalization, so many things. And just by having a small statement at the beginning of presentations, concerts, whatever it might be, uh, sort of grounds the the work. Yeah. Um, kind of akin to a prayer. I would say it's different from a prayer. But um, the and and you mentioned you know who does it right, and I I think you know the experiences you had in Australia are fantastic. I think Australia has done a lot in terms of its reconciliation with the indigenous people there. Um, and that's not that's no more apparent than say the government system. I mean, I think they just, I think it was New Zealand actually though, that just elected um, um, one of their parliament folks is a, is a matriarch yeah. mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, from um, Maori tribe. Yeah. And like, that's fantastic. Like we need that. And we're, we're not super there yet here. I mean, we have some representatives now who've been elected. I think we have, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't want to, be mistaken here, but I, I know the representation we have now in Congress, both Senate and House, is better 
than it's ever been. Yeah. Which is sad because, you know, it's still when not, you look at like, yeah, you know, the, right. the, the, like, like the seats that are there and then you put like dots over the ones that are native, it's still pretty dismal, but at least it's something, right? Right. Which is sort of land, the land acknowledgements, right? It's not where we want to be, <laughs> but it's something. Is that something you'd like to see? Like, I mean, you know, if, if you could make one qu- qu- quick change, I mean, I know it sounds so pedestrian to say, you know, quick change that would have an impact, you know, is something like having some sort of a dedication or benediction at any public event. Um, I know it had an impact on me when I was witnessing it. I, I wonder, is that like, if you could do one quick and easy thing to forward the cause, do you think that's, that it's is a great the thing, starting point? You know? And something that in my conversation today, I really wanted to hit home with is that it's not enough just to do a recognition, right? Uh, there are indigenous people here. They've been here. They're still here. Thank you. Like, okay, <laughs> great start. Yeah. We have to put some teeth behind it. And that's sort of been the conversation in, in indigenous communities where we have these sort of um, um, toothless <laughs> uh, land acknowledgements of just like, okay, well, what are you going to do with that? Right. It's not enough right. to just be like, look, there's native people. Like we know that <laughs> right. we're indigenous. Uh, we could have told you that without the acknowledgement. Um, but what's better is when we can put some um, oomph behind it. And that's not hard to do either. Um, you mentioned, you know, have you seen examples? I'm part of um, two spirit powwow planning committee in Phoenix. And uh, one of our, our land acknowledgement incorporates um, uh, you know, we, we don't, have gendered dances or bathrooms restrooms you know like everything is sort of you know you make the space for yourself because that's how you're identifying right um which is great because there are still powwows that are like nope this is a men's only dance (laughs) or this is a woman's only dance we're not gonna let you dance in it if you don't identify as one of those um or even if you do we're gonna make sure that uh, whatever is underneath is proven and it's like what like that was never that was not a thing back then. You know, mm-hmm. how traditional are you when you put those gender binaries on us? So anyway, so this powwow and our land acknowledgement is is front and center. It's posted, it's printed, and it's always said, of course. But it's so great because um, the kids that are there, which usually is the majority of our audience is younger people, are seeing what's sort of stereotypically, you know, the quintessential native experience is powwow. But so gender inclusive uh, that, uh, you know, something we in my generation and beyond never really saw, I think is just kind of magical. And then to have it printed and posted, you can dance where you feel like you want to dance, right? So amazing. So I like that because it's it's not just recognition, it's action that can be, you can hold people accountable to the action they're stating, right? So um, what I was trying to get across today is that having the land acknowledgement because there isn't one for the full institution itself. A lot of colleges do have a land acknowledgement. Building a land acknowledgement with your indigenous students and faculty, that alone I think would be a great starting point for some of that reconciliation to happen. But making sure that land acknowledgement also includes the kind of teeth I'm talking about, the accountability measures, Mm -hmm. the action items, things like we will try to increase native enrollment or we will try to incorporate more indigenous thought thinkers into our curriculums, right? Easy stuff. Right. Um, that can be done in very simple kind of baby step ways, but then you learn and progress and you grow from there. And a land acknowledgement is never supposed to be, you know, a stagnant thing. It's supposed to grow with your Evolve, organization. Yeah, right. So, right. um, yeah, if you, if it's done right, it's definitely a great place to get some of those changes made. Yeah. Cool. Well, I know you've said as long as you have a pen, 
change can happen. Mm-hmm. And um, and one of the things that I really enjoyed is is I've been you know reading a lot of your words online, and and uh, I was telling you how much I loved your the the way you handled your beef with J.K. Rowling, and um, especially the adorable oh my gosh video with you and your daughter, the letter to J.K. Rowling video. And if you haven't seen that, everyone, it is just really wonderful to to see uh, you and your daughter and, and just your just your daughter having that wonderful space to share her thoughts and opinions and and that vibrancy. Um, But the writing continues and you have a new book coming out and I would love to take some time and talking about it. So tell me all about the book and tell me when it's coming out and also kind of what your intention is with it, what you want readers to get out of it. For sure. Thank you. I'm so excited. Yeah, this I've been published as part of anthologies in the past, um, or, you know, so poetry or magazines, things like that. But this is my first book, which, you know, for me in a personal space is like, like, that's my made it moment. I, I feel like I've done some great stuff for community building, but this is my selfish thing. I'm so excited about this. Yeah. Um, right. Original publication was November 2020. So it was going to be out we this I know, we were hoping month. it was going to be out for, for your I visit. definitely had some mourning period when my publisher was like, look, we're small and, you know, we've been hit hard by COVID. It's a uh, Mango Publishing out of Miami. So they, they're small. Um, and uh, I'm so grateful that they've, you know, given me yeah. space and time and whatever. So 2021, um, they haven't put a date on it, but it will be coming. It's nice because they're also letting me update a couple of chapters I mentioned, you know, Indian mascots is a big deal for me. That's, that's how I was politicized, if you will, as a Mm -hmm. younger person. So it's a, um, some of the advancements we've made this summer alone, summer 2020 to, um, the mascot issue, um, which is huge for Indian people. Um, and so we, uh, they're going to let me update some of that, which I think is great because it's crucial to the story of that. Right. Um, but the book itself. So Thunder Thighs and Trickster Vibes. It's such an awesome title. Oh, my gosh. I love it, too. Uh, and in fact, when I was first, um, so I had the manuscript and I was pitching titles because they're like, well, give us a couple things that you think. So I had a couple. I had a list of probably like 10, but Thunder Thighs and Trickster Vibes is my top. And it's always something I've felt um, like Trickster was always going to be a part of it. But, um, you know, my um, my identity, as many people have multiple identities, right? We're multitudes in our human, yes, yes. Uh, you know, uh, experience. So um, one of my other uh, identities is, is as a fat person um, and having acceptance of my body and what it's able to do and how it's able to do, say, like the activism work that's so important, right? Yeah. This body does that. Yes. <laughs> and I'm yes. proud of that body. Yes. Um, and uh, that's taken me a long time to come to terms with. Uh, and, and a big piece of that is that trickster aspect of like breaking down barriers to bodies like mine. Yeah. Um, and so it sort of fit. And it was a sort of like... I think everyone sort of resonated with, oh, it's great. It is a trickster vibes. fabulous title. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, the subtitle is Storied Advice from Your Fat Two-Spirit Auntie. I love so, it. So, yeah, uh, pretty jazzed. And, uh, and you were saying it's kind of a guidebook in a right. way. It's the book I needed as an indigenous youth. Not necessarily like a kid kid, but definitely in that teenage college age, you know, that identity finding stage that we all go through. And having... A book like this, which if if my writing, if I'm proud of anything in my writing and what I've heard from others in terms of feedback is it's approachable. 
Yeah. I like words, but I also like words that people can grasp. Um, well, your writing's very conversational. Right. You know, it feels like you're talking to a friend, and that is and awesome. That is purposeful and intentional. I, I definitely want it to be something where I could speak to you in the same way that yeah. my writing comes across. So I even, you know, the asides that I put in are like the italicized. Yeah, yeah, you know, totally. Um, those come through, and uh, I, I think it works. So, um, and I, yeah, I do try to make it accessible. You know, put my kid through some of the chapters. How does that sound? Mm-hmm. But it's looking at how to reincorporate the philosophy of Mitake Oyasin, which in Lakota is a is is recognition that we're all related. Mm-hmm. It has um, various translations, but that's the 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 general concept is mm-hmm. we're all related, and not we as in humans, but we as in everything, um, non-human. Uh, entities which includes land mm-hmm. which includes animals and the plants and and of course people too but i mean as we learn to explore the cosmos that too yeah and the stories are relatives um and so how do we reincorporate that philosophy to today's framework and so i use the things that i'm most passionate about the activism if you will um everything from say food sovereignty to mascots um to even just indigenous motherhood and what that looks like especially yeah. if you don't live on a reservation right or right. you're disconnected in some way how do you do that how do you incorporate being a good relative within all those um again different identity spheres that we inhabit and we should say that though though you do in a way you intended as a guidebook for the the book you needed i mean it's these kinds of topics i mean i i've read on your blog about you writing about parenting and i mean it it resonates all over i mean you know and so it's it's uh, certainly anybody could read it i mean that's the hope of course i mean I, i do want it to get out there um you know but um it is important to me that my my audience is again those indigenous young people who yeah. wouldn't have that, right? Um, yes, universal concepts. I mean, and that's sort of always been what indigenous people I think are known for. Things that people can appropriate, right? Like yeah. ideas and concepts that like, oh, that sounds really good. I would love to be more connected to the land. I would love to use right. you know, this kind of adornment or whatever for my own well, purposes. Well, and including so. that of radical love. Right, and, right. Which is a beautiful one that we have all appropriated and right, used right. and but is a centerpiece of it. Right. And and like what does that look like? Right? People are like, that's like that's kind of a like buzzword a radical love. What does it mean? It's literally like the simplest form of 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 love is like making your daily practice ceremonial. So we tend to think of ceremony, especially within indigenous communities, as um, there's a lot of gatekeepers to Mm -hmm. that. I mean, and even with non-native communities, the gatekeepers of ceremony, um, you know, you're not enough of something. And so you therefore can't participate. And that's just BS, right? And so if we can turn, you know, if radical love can be ceremonial in your daily practice, so, you know, uh, caring for your land or caring for your relatives, wearing a mask, (laughs) right? Like how, you know, how much better could our world be if we incorporated some of those just basic ideas into our daily um, lives? And, And again, it's not about you. It's about the relatives you're making and connecting with. Well, that is such a beautiful sentiment to kind of bring our time to a close. But I have one last fun question that I ask everyone. And um, the question is, what's turning you on this week? And it could be anything. It doesn't have to be academic or anything like that. It could be a TV show. It could be a movie. It could be a comic book. It could be a book. It could be your favorite lipstick. It could be and we've had it. It runs the gamut. So it's just kind of a fun sort of off the cuff extra thing for people to know, um, you know, just something extra about you. So Tate Walker, what is turning you on this week? 
dang. I love that. It's so like, oh, let's turn them out. <laughs> There's the rule books I'm looking at that's like prohibitive language of sexual content. So <laughs> I'll take that in its um, philosophical format. Um, the native vote is really turning me on yes. this week. Oh. As someone who lives in Occupy Space in Arizona, we have traditionally been a very um, conservative state. Um, and regardless of what your politics are, uh, that conservatism has translated to really harmful things for Indian country. And that's not okay, right? So regardless of what your partisanship is, the fact of the matter is harm is being done to indigenous communities and has been done. We have put out all the stops to get the native vote out. And I am so proud that uh, we have, um, I mean, regardless of how the state turns and we're still counting ballots, the fact that we had some of the best voter turnout for Indian country is just, it gives me chills because yeah. um, we've got power, right? Even though there's some media corporations that would uh, call our uh, demographic something else. Yes, right. We've, that's yeah. <laughs> it's a joke if you've seen that. Um, yeah. Mistake, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's sort of expected, I think, for a lot of indigenous people. Like, eh, well, they don't really see us. And again, where the land acknowledgement could come into play as a beneficial thing. But with the native turnout, I mean, we see that we've got some of that power. And power that was never, like, ours really to hold. I mean, yeah. when everybody else had citizenship and the voting rights, uh, even... You know, 1924 was when we had uh, were given citizenship in the United States. And it wasn't until, I mean, here in Utah, uh, when I was looking up some research here, it wasn't until like the 60s that tribes here in Utah actually had the full-fledged right to vote. Yeah. Um, and so much, so many barriers were put into place uh, against Natives to vote that to have the turnout we did totally turning me on. Great. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for spending this hour with me. It's been such a pleasure. And the uh, Fierce is the book that you can find um, Tate's writing and, of course, also online um, as well. Your website is jtatewalker.com. Awesome. And all of her writing is accessible through there. Um, and then the new book, Thunder Thighs and Chick Survives, is coming out in 2021. And with that, we'll say goodbye. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU's Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.